You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Naomi McAreevy from University College Dublin. Her paper was entitled Ported Down, 1641, Memory and the 1641 Depositions. The mass drowning of Protestants in the River Ban during the early months of the 1641 rebellion has cast a long shadow over Ported Down. Locally, it is remembered in a variety of forms, and I'll show you some of these. Um, a folk song, um, and you can see some of the lyrics. Um, orange Order banners, commemorative plaques, uh, these were um, put up in 1991 um, on the 350th anniversary of the, of the Rising. Um, a reenactment which um, took place at this time, um, as well as uh, through more ephemeral um, details such as memories of excavated bones um, and stories of ghosts um, that haunt the ban. And I also believe um, uh, that there's a rich oral tradition um, yet to be uncovered in Portadown. Um, I've given this a longer version of this talk in Portadown, and, um, and among the audience was uh, a descendant of Ellen Matchett, who was a, um, a deponent who I'd worked on. Um, she hadn't actually read the deposition of her foremother, but had been told by her own mother and had kind of a vivid recollection of, um, of, of hearing this story. And, um, and I think there's probably more of that, um, uh, but... It's not always easy to get to that, uh, that information. So, but yet, uh, little is known about what actually happened that winter. We can neither securely date the atrocity nor accurately estimate the death toll. We cannot ascertain whether it was one incident or several. We do not know if the massacre was spontaneous or pre-planned. And we know little of the immediate circumstances of the killings. All we know is that a large number of Protestants lost their life in the river and ban in the early months of the rebellion. Um, so this is, I'll run through this quickly because I'm sure most of you know the depositions very well. Um, but the earliest recorded memories of the drownings um, can of course be found among the 1641 depositions at Trinity College Dublin. The collection is diverse but can be broadly divided into two categories. The first is the core of the collection and the original uh, and depositions that were gathered in the early 1640s, primarily in Dublin, where refugees had fled from violence elsewhere in the country. They were collected by a clergyman led by Henry Jones, Dean of Kilmore, um, with the threefold purpose of gathering evidence against the, the rebels, providing a historical record of what happened, and facilitating the relief of victims. The second um, is the Commonwealth examinations taken in the early 1650s with a more singular aim of convicting those responsible for violence. Original and Commonwealth materials commingle in the collection, which is now um, split into separate county group groupings. And I emphasise this distinction because it's going to be quite important uh, for my paper um, because I think um, something different happens in, in the two uh, separate commissions. Among the 1641 depositions are 45 items that mention the drownings in Portadown. 
Some provide detailed accounts of the atrocity, others mention it only in passing. Almost all of the references can be found among the Armagh depositions, although there are a small number of depositions from the bordering um, counties. There are more than um, twice as many depositions from the 1640s um, as there are um, among the Commonwealth examinations. Among the original depositions, the earliest that speaks of the Portadown drownings is William Clark's and the last is um, Anthony Strafford, so um, over two years or so. Um, relevant Commonwealth examinations range from November 1652 to June 53. Clark is the only deponent um, to testify twice, so he's quite significant uh, uh, in that regard. He's also only one of, um, two, or one of only two eyewitnesses to the atrocity, and the other eyewitness is, is Philip Taylor. Everyone who deposed in the 1640s was a Protestant refugee, but among the Commonwealth materials are the examination of two Protestant or two alleged rebels, um, and they say little other than to deny involvement in the atrocity, although both admit to having heard of it. Among the deponents, there are 13 women, two deposed with their husbands, and the majority of the rest identify as widows, um, and there are 32 men representing a variety of, um, of professions and a range of literacies um, is represented. So a real cross-section um, of the, of the um, community of, of Armagh. Traumatised opponents from Armagh and its border counties delivered their testimonies in the relatively safe but distant and probably unfamiliar capital city. They arrived in Dublin having been robbed and stripped, displaced from their homes, the victims are witnesses of violence, often bereaved of family and friends and having endured a long and arduous uh, journey through rebel territory. Nehemiah Richardson gives some sense of the terrible state in which many deponents arrived in Dublin when he testifies um, that he escaped to Dublin on his bare feet and almost stark naked, only having a piece of a sack and some other poor rags to cover his nakedness and his feet, and came to town before he was able to stand. For the lucky ones, their sufferings had been relatively short. William Clark was in Dublin within, the we- within weeks of the ported on drowning, so he was already there before the commission start- commissioners started their work. Elizabeth Price was not so lucky. Um, she did not reach Dublin until June 1643, having only recently escaped um, from the rebels. Uh, so she'd been in, uh, uh, um, in rebel hands for 18 months or so. Deponents spoke to sympathetic listeners, some of whom were themselves victims of the rebellion, but they delivered their testimonies to men they did not know, who were often their social superiors and in the imposing surroundings of Dublin Castle um, or the law courts. Their depositions were also recorded at a time when most of Ireland was in rebel hands and the future of the plantations was still um, uncertain. The Commonwealth examinations, in contrast, were taken after the Cromwellian uh, reconquest at a time of relative peace and stability. They were also recorded where the examinants lived. In the later examinations, um, there is more emphasis on the guilt of the rebels than the suffering of the victims. An evocative detail tends to be replaced by the bare facts of what happened. These differences, um, I think, have a significant impact on how the Portadown drownings were remembered between the 1640s and the 1650s. So, for the rest of my paper, I will attend to how the, the Portadown massacre was remembered by different opponents and examinants, by refugees speaking within weeks and months of the event, to those recalling the incident over a decade later, by eyewitnesses, to those providing hearsay evidence, by survivors um, and by the bereaved. I will identify different accounts of the atrocity and by considering how they were shaped by time and circumstance, um, I hope to illustrate the tensions, inconsistencies and contradictions in such memories. A 
Although my fundamental point is that the 1641 depositions provide no clear and consistent account of what happened in Portadown, I will build my discussion um, on the following chronology um, of events. None of these things are discussed by any one deponent, um, so it's kind of gathering together. So the imprisonment of Protestants in Lockall Church, and the release of some prisoners with the promise of safe passage, the journey towards Portadown, the, mur- the murder of a local minister um, on the way, the mass drowning at the bridge, and then the escape of a lucky few, and finally the, the aftermath, paranormal activity in the ban um, uh, after the atrocity. So, and I'm going to run through this quite quickly, so I hope, um, I hope my argument doesn't get lost in the, um, in the detail. Um, so deponents testify, so I'll start with imprisonment of Protestants. Deponents testify that some of those joined in Portadown had first been imprisoned in Lockwell Church, and there are statements from five people incarcerated there. Manus O'Kane, Brian O'Kelly and Patrick O'Mallon are repeatedly named as the rebels responsible for the incarceration of the Protestants. But what emerges from the Commonwealth examinations is the claim that they um, acted under Sir Phelan O'Neill's direct orders. O'Neill um, had been named as the chief of the rebels um, in William Clark's 1642 deposition, but in his 1653 um, examination, Clark adds, um, evidently in response to the promptings of the commissioners, that um, the Irish gave out um, that this was done by Sir Philip O'Neill's command. John Warren similarly testifies that he and his fellow Protestants were captured by the said Sir Philip's soldiers and even claims that O'Neill himself bid them welcome um, uh, as they were brought to prison. Warren's was among a cluster of examinations gathered in February 1653 in preparation for the trial of Sir Philip O'Neill, which began in Dublin um, in the, the May. No other deponents suggested O'Neill was physically present as the Protestants were taken to Lockall Church. That's something that happened specifically um, in, uh, in, in 1653. There are con- inconsistencies in the depositions about the number imprisoned and the circumstances of their imprisonment. Warren gives the Commonwealth Commissioners the largest figure for the number of prisoners, testifying that the final total reached 155. But the Commonwealth examinations do not always prompt the highest estimates. Clark testifies in 1642 that, quote, at the least 100 men, women and children were imprisoned, but by um, 53, this figure is reduced to 60 um, without any acknowledgement of the discrepancy. The lower figure is closest to that provided by other deponents, with Price setting 60 plus and Edward Saltonstall and George Littlefield 70. Deponents rarely um, provide detail about the experience of the prisoners, and Clark is unusual in testifying, and then only in 1642, um, that many um, of them were sore tortured by strangling and half-hanging and many um, other cruel actions. So release of some prisoners. So deponents testify the prisoners were held for a period ranging between two days and two weeks after some of those imprisoned um, children and those uh, that they knew had no means left, according to Price, were given passes uh, to go to England. The depositions are largely consistent in saying that the pass came from Sir Philip O'Neill, but the strongest evidence against him comes again from Warren, who in 1653 places him again at the scene, testifying um, that the rebels told the Protestants in this examinant's hearing um, that Sir Phelan was come and that they had received orders to send uh, them away. Repeated uh, throughout the earlier depositions is the idea that the prisoners, quote, believed the report, that's Carlisle, embraced the officer, uh, the offer, that's Price, um, and went with the rebels gladly, and that's from Newbury, with the emphasis on the innocence and naivety of the Protestants. 
But by the 1650s, the rebels' intentional act of treachery um, becomes the focus, and variations on the word pretend um, are insistently repeated. So there's a a question about the the premeditation um, or not uh, there. The deposition memories of the journey to Portadown vary in terms of the size of the convoy and the conduct of the soldiers. Clark suggests that, quote, he with a hundred men, women and children or thereabouts were in the convoy, whereas Sultan saw little field in later war and used the figure of 100 to name the number of rebels um, leading the group. So obviously a significant difference um, in the size of the convoy. Um, according to Price, the prisoners were um, brought or rather driven like sheep or beasts to a market, and our language echoes that of the other deponents speaking in the 1640s. Price's substitution of, um, of driven um, for brought here um, reflects a preference for a word that is also used by Clark, Saltonstall um, and Littlefield, so they all use driven, um, suggesting that the prisoners were herded to the bridge like animals. Animal similes are used by other deponents to describe the dehumanisation of the prisoners. For Clark, they are treated like hogs, while for Richard Newbury, they are like sheep to the slaughter. Subtle distinctions in the choice of noun, different animals, hogs, sheep, beasts and different destinations, market, slaughterhouse, do little to undermine the sense that deponents were influenced by each other as they remembered and recorded their experiences. Such evocative details are absent from the Commonwealth examinations, which instead focus on the bare facts of the journey. Clark reports that, quote, uh, such English as they met, uh, the rebels that take them along with the rest, and this information is corroborated by William Skelton and others, as in the, the, the convoy becomes bigger and bigger as they travel. Um, Jane Bear, um, or Bear suggests that among those later drowned were country people that ran into them upon the report that they were to go to Lisnagarvey or Lisburn, um, thinking to take benefit um, of that convoy. Warren testifies that he and his parents were also attempted to join the convoy uh, until his father asked Manus O'Kane, who then commanded at Loch Gaul, whether or not he and his might not go along with them, um, which the said O'Kane, smiling, said, you may go if you will, but the examinant's father, mistrusting thereby some mischief, um, uh, did not go. So again, the, in- the intention is, um, is there, um, according to Warren. Seven deponents of the 1640s testified to the murder of William Fullerton and two or three others um, on the journey from Loch Gaul. All the deponents, including Mr. Minister Fullerton's widow, Eleanor, offer only hearsay evidence. And while Fullerton's name and clerical status is repeatedly mentioned, no doubt he was well um, known to the prisoners from Loch Gaul, the names and the number of, the other, um, um, of other victims are unclear. Unique among the depositions is Sultan Saul and Littlefield's joint pronouncement that Minister Fullerton was beheaded. Um, as a manner of death, it was particularly resonant of native Irish barbarism in the early modern period. Sultan Saul and Littlefield's recording of this detail reinforces their sense, um, sense of the cruelty of the rebel they identify as primarily responsible for their own suffering, as well as um, the Portadown massacre, and that's their fellow Grange native, um, Manus O'Kane. So there is kind of local dynamics at work there, I think. The other um, deponents say only that the minister was murdered, perhaps sparing him from the ignominy of decapitation. A low clerk, so this is the heart, <laughs> I suppose, of the paper. A low clerk has been cited as the only eyewitness to the drownings. Portadown resident Philip Taylor also claims that the atrocity occurred, quote, in his sight. The death toll he gives is 196, which is not only the highest, among the highest estimates, but a figure that the deponent does not produce himself, but was credibly um, told and believeth. Uh, 
the, the gap between his eyewitness account of the drowning of, quote, a great number of English Protestants and his reliance on hearsay evidence to provide an exact death toll is striking, but perhaps not surprising, given the, the chaotic uh, scene he witnessed. Clark offers the lower figure of 100, but this is below average for the depositions. Among the hearsay reports of the 1640s, the figures that most frequently appear fall in the range of 140 to 160. Lower estimates are provided by Price, who offers the figure of 115. Dr. Robert Maxwell proposes the highest number, 190, which he further inflates by suggesting that there were other atrocities on a similar scale at Portadown Bridge, bringing the final death toll to over 1,000. The average for the 1650s examinations is similar to that of the 1640s, although there is more consistency. Five examinations cite 140 and two quote 100, Clark repeating the figure um, from his earlier deposition. Although it is tempting to conclude that 100 or more Protestants cite a Portadown Bridge, perhaps the only thing that can be said with certainty is that the opponents, um, the opponents remembered it as a large-scale atrocity. Perhaps the truth of the experience is best expressed by mother and daughter Anne Smith and Margaret Clark, um, who had, quote, several of their friends, acquaintances and neighbours joined at the bridge of Portadown to the number of 150 at one time, so as indeed all the full and fair plantations of Protestants in the country thereabouts were quite depopulated um, and destroyed. For many deponents, their losses were personalised. Like Smith and Clark, Humphrey and Elizabeth Stewart report that they lost neighbours um, uh, in, the tr- in the atrocity. I'll not read this. There are four other, or there are four deponents who lost, um, or believe themselves to have lost, family and members in the drowning um, as well. Um, and there are some of the details. Among the list of fatalities provided by deponents, it seems that whole families were decimated, with juvenile victims by far outnumbering the adult dead. Most of the deponents who speak of the Portadown drownings provide little detail beyond the number and to a less extent names of those uh, who died. The two eyewitnesses provide further detail about the fate of the Protestants as they were thrown from Portadown Bridge, with Clark testifying that the rebels, quote, stripped the said people naked, and Taylor specifying that some of those killed in Portadown were, um, quote, with their hands, uh, were drowned with their hands tied on their backs, that's a quote. Similarly suggestive of the hopelessness of the prisoner situation, Clark, suggest, or Clark claims um, that those of them that essay to swim to the shore, the rebels stood to shoot at. And in his later examination, he adds that those who tried to swim to safety and um, the rebels did either shoot or knock them down with the oars of their boats. In these details, Clark's testimony um, most reflects the kind of images that have for centuries been most associated um, with memories um, of the Portadown Massacre. And you'll see that example from Cranford. Although actually it's not specifically reported on, it's just it's more generalised on, on, on drawings in 1641. But but it's the image that um, is used by um, the Orange Order um, in, in terms of as a model for their banners. Yet there were survivors of the drownings, including Clark himself, who secured his release by paying fifteen pounds to the rebels at the waterside. Even when Clark describes his escape, the emphasis is on continued trauma um, as he endures um, many hardships, um, such as stripping, hunger, cold, nakedness, imprisonment in the dungeon at RD with 10 more Englishmen, his neighbours. And his fellow opponent, Richardson, may have been among this group. The latter testifies um, that he escaped to RD where he was put in prison and beaten by the soldiers and called English dog and threatened to be hanged. Richardson had already acknowledged his own escape from the Portadown drownings. Um, uh, 
he says they perceived him, um, or sorry, they preserved him, his, this opponent, to work for them on his trade, which was a tallow chandler, um, and he fled from them in the night. In earlier and later materials, there are second-hand accounts of prisoners being rescued by Irish Catholics. In 1642, John Wisdom sources his account to the drownings of, um, of a survivor who, quote, escaped, from, um, escaped being begged of an Irish man to be his servant. And Thomas Howard, examined in 1652, testifies that a servant of his household was a child survivor of the drownings, um, but by the help of one Irish man, um, escaped into an old house and so was saved. In 1653, Thomas Taylor recounts how he was saved by the actions of an Irish woman, a friend of his family, um, who locked this examinant in the room till night and then let him out and told him that all those English that were sent away in the morning um, were put to death and poured it down. Taylor also mentions a separate escape of his pregnant mother and five-year-old brother from the waters of the band, of, of the band, sorry, and the woman's survival was brief, however. Stuart testifies that she endured a second drowning attempt that claimed the life of her young son, a trauma that brought on a premature labour that resulted in her death um, and the death of her unborn child. As this woman's story suggests, within the depositions, survival is rare and usually only temporary. Supernatural activity is described in a significant minority of the 1640s depositions, 8 out of 28, um, but in none of the 1650s examinations. Newbury testifies that apparitions were spotted in Portadown within a few days of the massacre, and speaking in June 1643, Price says she saw them about Candlemas last, over the early February, which together suggests that there may have been sightings for more than a year. Price and another woman, Catherine Cook, offer eyewitness testimony, which means that there are as many eyewitnesses to the apparitions as there are um, to the massacre itself. Cook's status as eyewitnesses emphasised in her deposition as, she, uh, as the words she saw um, and as she apprehended are inserted during the revision um, process to clarify um, the source of, um, of her evidence. That her account with Osterup was specifically authorised in this way and also that Price was allowed to offer such a full and comprehensive description of what she saw at Portadown Bridge suggests that the commissioners treated these stories, which are in many ways outside the remit of the Deposition Commission, um, as worthy of note. It's possible that they were gathered with print publication in mind um, as their warranting um, of their own subsection in Sir John Temple's Notorious Irish Rebellion, and might suggest examinations touching the apparitions of Portadown Bridge um, within the province um, of Ulster. And, and I wonder, is that because do, Portadown doesn't appear um, in uh, Jones in 1642, it's Temple um, where it really um, kind of gathers uh, life um, and starts to become the kind of iconic uh, atrocity of 1641. Newbury's deposition is typical in specifying that the evidence comes from the rebels themselves. They saw the apparitions and the sightings uh, terrified them. He is unusual in naming the rebels to whom he is indebted um, for his account rather than suggesting that it was common report among the rebels as so many other um, opponents do. Minister Robert Maxwell's fuller account of supernatural activity in Portadown is also based on evidence from the rebels themselves, um, amongst whom he suggests the sightings were, quote, common table talk. He claims to have deliberately engaged the rebels in conversation about the spectres and, quote, objected unto them about the, um, the ghost's existence. Um, he alone testifies um, to the appearance of the murdered Minister Fullerton among the apparitions. Um, thus, his desire to disprove the Catholic belief that they were the ghosts of the dead is driven by his need to protect the minister from the suggestion that he was languishing in purgatory rather than enjoying um, salvation as a Protestant martyr. 
So it is, it's, new, it's the, literally the only um, time where Fullerton actually manifests um, in, in the ban. Maxwell provides further details about the appearance of Fullerton and the other ghosts. And their singing of psalms and brandishing of naked swords, quotes, um, are particulars found only in his testimony. But his account of the horrible screeching of the apparitions is repeated throughout the deposition evidence. Joan Constable also reports that the apparitions did, quote, most extremely and fearfully sh- uh, screech. Um, and, but while for Maxwell the supernatural shrieks are wordless, for Constable the apparitions um, uh, cry out for vengeance and blood against the Irish that had murdered their bodies there. A lengthy um, eyewitness account of a particular vision um, in the River Ban is at the heart of Price's deposition and, and really why Price is so um, famous. Um, she and her companions, all widows, deliberately seek out the apparitions, visiting Portadown um, upon hearing of diverse apparitions and visions that were ordinarily seen near the Portadown Bridge since the drowning of her children and the rest of the Protestants there. Price is alone among the depositions and witnessing um, a single female apparition, um, with Constable, for example, offering hearsay evidence that the apparitions were sometimes of men and sometimes of women. Constable adds that the figures appear breast high above the water and for Price the apparition um, appears waist high upright in the water. Um, The word naked is added in the second draft of her deposition which may reflect the ubiquitous um, experience of stripping. Price also provides more detail about the figure's pose which she describes as having elevated and closed hands. Um, Cook similarly records this detail having witnessed a figure in the water bolt upright breast high with elevated and closed hands. Although the textual echoes are striking, Cook's apparition is in the shape of, um, of a man. So, quick conclusion. There are relatively few memories of the ported iron drownings contained in the 1641 depositions, 1% um, to be exact, and those that survive are partial, incomplete, varied, inconsistent, even contradictory. They are fundamentally shaped by the way they were collected, recorded and used, as well as by the identity positions of the deponents and the status of their evidence as as eyewitness or hearsay. As such, the 1641 depositions are a rich resource for memories of the rebellion, and of course Protestant memories, um, but perhaps not for the facts of what happened. Traces of the deposition evidence can be found in local commemorative um, traditions in Portadown and elsewhere, but the rough edges of the evidence have been smoothed out to tell a simpler story um, of Irish Catholic violence against Protestant settlers. Interestingly, the, um, in these kinds of images, the victims are always female, and none of the dot depositions suggest that at all. Men and women are equal in numbers, if children um, are the overwhelming number, and maybe it's easier to, um, to paint a, a rounded uh, female pair of buttocks <laughs> than it is to distinguish a, a child, you know, so it becomes evocative for those for kind of very practical reasons as well as obviously ideological ones. So, yeah, sorry, traces of the deposition evidence can be found in local commemorative traditions, but the rough edges of the evidence have been smoothed out to tell a simpler story of Irish Catholic violence against Protestant settlers. I hope I've shown that the deposition evidence is much messier and harder to pin down than these commemorative practices suggest. Attending to the history of 1641 memories may have the potential to offer a more nuanced picture um, of the way sectarian violence was experienced and documented in the past, and perhaps suggests a way of re-evaluating the role of memory in history in post-conflict Northern Ireland. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts, 
from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.